Welcome to One Chapel. We're a family of neighborhood churches in the Austin area. Our vision is to help people move from where they are to where God wants them to be. It's a place to connect, grow, and serve the communities where we live. You can learn more about One Chapel and how to get involved at onechapel.com. And now, here's this week's message. Last week, we started a new series around here that we're calling At the Table, and we're doing things just a little bit differently as we are doing this series. And so, as we get started here today, I want you to try to remember back when you were in school. For some of you, that was just a few weeks ago, and for others of you, that was a little bit further back, like way back, Larry. And I want you to try to picture yourself carrying your lunch tray into the cafeteria. You got that picture in mind? And as you enter the room, you survey all the different types of people who are there in the room. The names have changed over the years, but those basic types of people came into our popular consciousness back in 1985 with the popular film, The Breakfast Club. How many remember The Breakfast Club? Remember that one? This John Hughes classic explained to us how, who was really at each of these tables in probably every high school in America. At one table are the goth kids. At another table there are the popular and often the rich kids. At another table are the jocks and the athletes. At another table are the academics or the nerds. And finally at the other table are the quote unquote rebels. What the movie, The Breakfast Club, really kind of showed us was that if we take the time to get to know these kind of quote-unquote rebels, they actually have a compelling and a complicated story. Actually, every character in the movie had a compelling story. And the point to the movie was that these kids, they got trapped in detention. And so they had to get to know not just the stereotype, but the complicated human being behind the stereotype. And so the big idea is that if we get away from our usual tables and we start to get to know the people at the other tables, they're far more interesting than I think we probably could have ever imagined. We empathize with them. We care then about them. We see the bigger picture. The problem is, for so many of us, we just never do this. Most of us pick a table that we're going to be at in high school, and to be honest, I think most of us end up staying there at that table for our entire life. But Jesus showed us a better way. He sat at tables with all sorts of people. Today, we're going to look at a time when Jesus sat down, but not at a table, but something a little bit more public, a well. And he had this conversation with somebody he wasn't supposed to have a conversation with, let alone have a relationship with. Because this person was, number one, a Samaritan. Number two, a woman. And number three, someone who'd been through multiple divorces. But Jesus took the time to sit down with her and to talk with her. And that conversation changed her life and ultimately changed an entire town. Look at this in John chapter 4, starting in verse 5. It says, Jesus arrived at the Samaritan village in Sakar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph long ago. 
Wearied by his long journey, he sat on the edge of Jacob's well. He sent his disciples into the village to buy food, for it was already afternoon. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink of water. Surprised, she said, why would a Jewish man ask a Samaritan woman for a drink of water? Jesus replied, if you only knew who I am and the gift that God wants to give you, you would ask me for a drink and I would give it to you living water. The woman replied, but sir, you don't even have a bucket and this well is very deep. So where do you find this living water? Do you think that you are greater than our ancestor Jacob who dug this well and drank from, from it himself along with his children and livestock? Jesus answered, if you drink from Jacob's well, you'll be thirsty again and again. But if anyone drinks the living water I give them, they will never ever thirst again and will be forever satisfied. For when they drink the water I give you, it becomes a gushing fountain of the Holy Spirit springing up and flooding you with endless life. The woman replied, let me drink that water so I'll never be thirsty again. Won't have to come back here to draw water. Jesus said, go get your husband and bring him back here. But I'm not married, the woman answered. That's true, Jesus said. For you've been married five times and now you're living with a man who is not your husband. You have told the truth. The woman said, you must be a prophet. So tell me this. Why do our fathers worship God here on this nearby mountain? But your people teach that Jerusalem is the place where we must worship. Which is right. Jesus responded, Believe me, dear woman, the time has come when you won't worship the Father on a mountain nor in Jerusalem, but in your heart. Your people don't really know the one they worship. We Jews worship out of our experience, for it's from the Jews that salvation is made available. From here on, worshiping the Father will not be a matter of a right place, but the right heart. For God is a spirit, and he longs to have sincere worshipers who worship him and adore him in the realm of spirit and in truth. The woman said, this is all just so confusing, but I, knew that, I do know that the anointed one is coming, the true Messiah. And when he comes, he will tell us everything we need to know. Jesus said to her, you don't have to wait any longer. The anointed one is here speaking with you. I am the one you're looking for. At that moment... The disciples returned and were stunned to see Jesus speaking with the Samaritan woman. Yet none of them dared to ask him why or what they were discussing. All at once, the woman dropped her water jar and ran off to her village and told everyone, Come and meet a man at the well who told me everything I've ever done. He could be the anointed one we've been waiting for. Hearing this, the people came streaming out of the village to go see Jesus. The disciples began to insist that Jesus eat some of the food they brought back from the village, saying, Teacher, you must eat something. But Jesus told them, don't worry about me. I have eaten a meal you don't know about. Puzzled by this, the disciples began to discuss among themselves, did someone already bring him food? I mean, where did he get this meal? Then Jesus spoke up and said, my food is to be doing the will of him who sent me and bring it to completion. As the crowds emerged from the village, Jesus said to his disciples, why would you say the harvest is another four months away? Look at all the people coming. Now is harvest time. For their hearts are like vast fields of ripened grain, ready for spiritual harvest. And everyone who reaps these souls for eternal life will receive a reward. And those who plant spiritual seeds and those who reap the harvest will celebrate together with great joy. And this confirms the saying, one sows the seed, another reaps the harvest. I have sent you out to the harvest, a field that you haven't planted, where many others have labored along and hard before you. And now you are privileged to profit from their labors and reap the harvest. 
So there were many from the Samaritan village who became believers in Jesus because of this woman's testimony. He told me everything I did, and they begged Jesus to stay with them. So he stayed there for two days, resulting in more coming to faith in him because of his teaching. And the Samaritan said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you told us, but now we've heard him for ourselves and are convinced that he really is the true Savior of the world. Would you join me in praying as we start here this morning? Father, thank you for this moment. Thank you for this time. Thank you for bringing us all here to this place. And Holy Spirit, would you come and just bring your truth and your light to us that we may walk more fully in your will and your truth. Heavenly Father, we need you. We need you to work in our life, to show us truth and in our really inmost beings, just as you did to this woman, that you would show us truth and that you would lead us into your truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, can we get your Bibles out with me? Um, as I mentioned, we started a new series last week, and the theme verse for this series is Luke chapter 7, verse 34, which says, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. I just think that's an interesting verse. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. I mentioned this last week. I think for most of us, it just kind of goes above our head. Just kind of, we hear it and just kind of goes through one ear and out the other. This idea of eating and drinking. I mean, what in the world does that have to do with anything? Why is this even noteworthy? That's what we're kind of talking about here in this series. And I think one of the reasons why for so many of us this idea of eating and drinking really doesn't have much impact in our life is because meals meant way more back then in Jesus' time than they actually do for us here today. Today, I think we've lost the, the power and the impact that meals can have in our lives because the reality is that meals can bring people together, but they can also pull people apart. That's one of the things we talked about last week. For Jesus, the practice of eating and drinking wasn't a side point you know, to what he was doing here. It was actually a central point to everything he did. As a matter of fact, in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, it says, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. That was Jesus's mission. But in Luke 7, verse 34, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. This was Jesus's methodology. In other words, this is how he did it. This is how he accomplished his mission. And so in a culture back then where a lot of people were hostile and and arms linked to Jesus and, and what he was talking about, the way that Jesus walked people into God's kingdom was one meal at a time. This is really what we were talking about last week. And I just think this is so important for us to get because we live today in what is called a post-Christian culture. And I mentioned this last week. That doesn't necessarily mean that, that this is an anti-Christian culture. It just simply means that when you look at our, our culture, there's so many of our values and our morals that really find their roots in, in Jesus. But the, the key thing to kind of wrap your head around when we talk about this post-Christian culture is that it's actually a reaction against a Christian culture. It's kind of like our, the West kind of rebellious moment in time that we're having right now. And so that's why so many of our friends who don't follow Jesus are far more open to yoga and quasi-Buddhist mindfulness notions and, and organic juice than they are to God. And I think so many people are a little bit more open to um, even Hinduism and Islam and Judaism than they are to, to Jesus because there's this kind of knee-jerk reaction that's happening in our culture. And even if people aren't hostile towards Jesus, when you think about the culture in which we live in, there are a million other things that you could be doing right now than being sitting here in church. 
This is what's going on in our culture. This is the culture in which we live in. And I just think it's so disorienting because this is one of the things that has changed during our lifetimes. It was one way and now it's another. And so the question then becomes, well, then how do we invite people to follow Jesus in this post-Christian culture? In other words, how do I invite people into this amazing life of following Jesus in a culture where there's hostility? In a culture where it's not PC, and in a culture where it just feels so weird and awkward to even have these types of conversations. Well, in the series, what we're doing is we're looking at how Jesus did it. And we're looking at all the times that Jesus sat at a table and ate a meal with people in that culture, all sorts of people, people who were on the outskirts, people who were marginalized, people who were considered untouchables, unclean people. We're looking at all these different situations where Jesus sat down and had a meal with them, um, and which is the reason why Jesus had this reputation of, uh, in Luke 7, verse 34, that he was a glutton. He, he was a drunkard. That was the reputation that people had of him because he associated with all these people who were marginalized, these people who were tax collectors and, and sinners. And we're going to look at all these different people that Jesus had these meals with. And just the Gospel of Luke alone, there are over 50 references to Jesus and food. In the Gospel of Matthew, there are 94 references to Jesus and food. New Testament scholar Robert Karras, he writes this. He says, in Luke's Gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. I like this Jesus. (laughs) This is who we're called to be like, right? And so here in John chapter 4, Jesus sits down at this well with an unnamed Samaritan woman. Now, I want to try to bring you in to the cultural context of what's going on, because I think it's important for you to understand what's happening there, and to really grab a hold of how countercultural this encounter was. Because the first thing you need to understand is that Samaritans were outcasts and untouchables to the Jews. They're outcasts and untouchables. And the reason for this is because the Samaritans were a mixed race of people. It was a combination of of Jews and Gentiles that had married together. And it had come back all the way from 727 B.C. when the ten northern kingdoms of Israel were in captivity under the Assyrian um, Empire. And as a result of that, that intermarriage began to happen. And, and so Jews married um, Assyrians here. And as a result, this new people group called the Samaritans then were formed. And so for a devout Jew, these Samaritans represented everything they were against because they had disobeyed the Torah. The Torah told them the law of the Jewish culture was you cannot intermarry here. And so they had disobeyed. And so the Samaritans represented everything that the devout Jew was against. For the Samaritans, because they were rejected really by their cousins, by their brothers and sisters, because of that, then they established their own temple, not in Jerusalem, and their own religious system based on, 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 the, on the mountain of Mount, Mount Gerizim, which then only further fanned the flames of this prejudice between these two groups. As a matter of fact, the dislike for Samaritans was so great with the devout Jews that the Pharisees really took the lead on this, and they would actually pray that the Samaritans wouldn't be included in the resurrection of the dead when God would do that. That's how they actually prayed, and which was the reason why that, that, that with the Pharisees, when they wanted to insult Jesus and throw in names, different insulting names at him, they would call him a Samaritan. It was just like the worst thing you could call a person was then a Samaritan. And then the second thing here is because of this hostility between the Jews and the Samaritans, Jews would never, ever, 
ever set foot in Samaria. I mean, even if the closest distance from A to B was to go through Samaria, Jews would never, ever, ever walk even onto that property. They would go around even it cost them more time, more money, because they would never want to associate with these Samaritans. It's kind of like us. If we were if somehow, some weird way, wacky way, that you think that the, the Bikavians are evil and you can't associate with them, even though the fastest route to get into Austin is to go down Highway 71 through B Cave, you can't do that because you can't associate, you can't get on their property, you can't be a part of that. And so what you do is that you, you, you go the long way around, you, go, you turn on Hamilton Pool Road, and you go down Highway 12 to Dripping Springs, and you take Highway 290 to get into Austin. It's inconvenient, it takes more time, it costs more money to do it, but you can't associate with the Bikavians here. That's the, what the Jews were doing with the Samaritans. In verse 4, it says, Now he, Jesus, had to go through Samaria. Those words, had to, in the original Greek language, is the word edai, which has this idea of being driven forward by a divine appointment. In other words, for Jesus, this wasn't a geographically necessary for him to go into Samaria, but yet God was leading him to go into Samaria, even though no devout Jew would ever, ever, ever do this. And third, Jesus did something else that was kind of a cultural taboo, and that is he spoke with a woman in public. Now, I get it. We don't even understand the context of this one. You know, maybe it's a little bit, you know, when we deal with kind of um, the tension in the workforce, you know, the idea that you pro it's probably not best for you to have a meal um, at a restaurant with the opposite sex, somebody that you work with. It's kind of one of those cultural things you just say, the appearance is not good, and so we try to create those boundaries. That's probably the closest that we can get to, but in the Jewish culture, this was even something bigger. This was something bigger taboo because not only was this a Samaritan, which is check one, this is a Samaritan woman. So that's strike two here. And so she was twice an outcast in Jewish thought and practice. But yet Jesus asked this Samaritan woman for a drink of water. Verse seven, soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink of water. Surprise. She said, why would a Jewish man ask a Samaritan woman for a drink of water? And so it's understandable. You know, when I just talked about it, it's understandable why she was so shocked. Because here's this Jewish rabbi asking her, a Samaritan woman, for a drink of water. She's having this conversation. They're not even supposed to have a conversation. And now he's asking her to do something and to compound how, how controversial it was. He's asking to use her water vessel to drink out of. Not only is she an outcast and unclean, but her vessel is that in Jewish culture as well. He is not supposed to touch. He's not supposed to drink out of this. And so it's no wonder she's so confused here. And then number four, the fourth thing, just like I said, that this wasn't just a Samaritan. This was a Samaritan woman. But this isn't just any Samaritan woman. This Samaritan woman had five ex-husbands. And now she's with another man who she's not even married to. And so this Samaritan woman had a very, very bad reputation there in that city. And you know what a bad reputation does to a, a person's life. 
And so if you're caught socializing with somebody who has a bad reputation, now all of a sudden you're going to be associated with that person, and now that bad, bad reputation is now on you. People are going to assume you, a guy and a girl. She's after another guy here in this situation. He's entertaining her. And so now that, that reputation is now on him. Look at verse 6. It says, wearied by his long journey, that Jesus sat on the edge of Jacob's well. He sent his disciples into the village to buy food, for it was already afternoon. And now make note of the time of day here, because this is really important to understand what's happening here. And to kind of put this, I think, again, in our cultural context, we don't really go to a well you know, any, uh, anymore to get your drinks or your refreshment. I probably, the best thing I can give you an example to is like going to your local Starbucks. That's where people hang out. That's where you go to get refreshment here in our culture. And so in, the, in that culture, women of the city would have early in the morning gone to that well as a gathering place, not just to fill their, their vessels with water to take back to their homes, but it was a place where they would talk. They would laugh together. And ladies, please, please forgive me, but you understand we get a bunch of ladies together. It's a little bit of chatter. You know, it's the only time you've ever gone to get your hair cut. I learned more about people in the world and people in the city than I ever do in any other place. There's a little bit of gossip going on, right? Come on, please forgive me. Um, but it, I, think, I think it's generally true. You get a bunch of people together, they're chatting. And this is, so this is what would have been going on there in that culture. But notice it says that Jesus came to this well in the afternoon. So this is past the time that the women of the city would have already gone. They would have come early in the morning, get their water, and they had already left. But here comes this unnamed Samaritan woman who has this sordid past. And so she would have been front-page tabloid news for a long period of time with five husbands divorced, and now she's with another man who she's not married to, which I think is the reason why she's coming later in the afternoon in the heat of the day to get water, because all the other ladies are all gone, and this way she has, doesn't have to kind of submit herself to that ridicule and those condemning glances from her neighbors. And so I just think all this heightens the controversy of Jesus sitting with this particular Samaritan woman at that local Starbucks. And then here's the fifth one. And that is, the name of the Samaritan town that Jesus came to is also kind of interesting here. In verse 5, it says, Jesus arrived in the Samaritan village of Sakar near the field that Jacob had given his son Joseph long ago. That Sakar was, is the, was the, the capital city of Samaria. And it got its name Sakar, which means drunken, from the reputation of the inhabitants of that city. So this was a major party city, everybody. And so it, it was named after the drunkenness of the inhabitants there of that, of, that, of that city. And so think about this. Jesus sits down and has a drink at the local Starbucks with the quote-unquote worst woman in the quote-unquote worst town in the quote-unquote worst country. It's scandalous. It's completely countercultural what was going on here. But it's this encounter with this quote-unquote worst woman, the quote-unquote worst city, and the quote-unquote worst country, this, it's this, it's this encounter really kind of gives us this amazing picture of what true godly hospitality actually looks like. Now, that word hospitality is the Greek word philozenia. It's a compound word made of two words. Philo means love. Think about Philadelphia, the city of Brotherly love. That's what philo means. Zinnia 
means stranger, foreigner, immigrant, refugee, outsider, guest. And so if you know the word xenophobia, it's the exact opposite of, of, of hospitality because xenophobia is the fear of the foreigner, the fear of the stranger, the fear of the outsider. And so hospitality literally means the love for the stranger. That's what hospitality means. Rosaria Butterfield, in her book called The Gospel Comes with, with a House Ski, she defines it this way. It's turning strangers into neighbors and neighbors into family. Isn't that a great little definition? Let me give you kind of an expanded working definition of hospitality. Hospitality is expressing the welcome of God the Father to all through tangible acts of love, ideally through giving food, shelter, and relationship. I just think that's a good kind of working definition for us as we're talking about hospitality. But the thing you need to realize about hospitality is that first and foremost, it's a heart issue. It's a heart posture that you take that then leaks out into your lifestyle, into your budget, and your time in very tangible acts. And as followers of Jesus Christ, we're actually commanded to practice hospitality. It's something that's commanded all throughout the New Testament. Romans 12, verse 13, it says, When God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to what? What's it say? Practice hospitality. That word practice is the Greek word diokides, which means to do something with extreme effort and with a definite purpose and goal. So that's what we're commanded to do, to practice hospitality with extreme effort and with a definite purpose and goal. First Peter 4, verse 8 says, Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. That's, that's great, right? It feels good. I, I love that idea, but it's a little sappy. So how do we do this? Well, verse 9, offer hospitality to one another. <laughs> This is what we're commanded to do. This is how we express love is by offering hospitality to one another. And look at the add-on at the end of that that sentence. Without what? Without grumbling. So for all of you introverts who have people over your house, and it's getting later and later and later, and you you finally say, you know, you're all welcome to stay here as long as you want. When actually what you're thinking is, in the next 10 to 15 minutes, you guys need to get out of here, Right? Without grumbling is what he says. Or you see Joe coming to your potluck and everybody's bringing food and Joe only brings a bag of chips and salsa every time Joe comes without grumbling, right? We laugh at this on our our staff because Pastor Ross at our Austin location, he despises doing, did I say despise? that's That's a strong word, but it's probably true. He does not like doing potlucks in one chapel, Austin, because that's what he feels like. He feels like people just go to H-E-B and buy a bag of chips and salsa and a bag of, of cookies from there, and that's what they bring to the potluck. And so he just thinks they're always miserable. They're horrible. By the way, I love our potlucks. We need to do a lot more because you all bring amazing food when we do potlucks. That's without grumbling here, right? Verse 10. Each of you should use whatever gift, look at the word, use whatever gift you have received to serve others. In other words, use the gift of your home, the gift of your apartment, the gift of your culinary abilities, the gift of your time as faithful stewards of God's grace in various forms. Always remember, we're to be stewards, we're stewards of everything God puts into our hands. Hebrews 13 verse 2 says, do not forget to what? Show hospitality, and look at this, to strangers For by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Here's the thing, everybody. Hospitality is not just for your friends. Do you see this? How can you unknowingly actually host a literal angel if it's only with people that you know? Now, no no offense, everybody. 
but you're not angels. You know, I love having you in my house, but at the end of the day, I'm not fulfilling that scripture because I actually have to do it with strangers, don't I? And it's only with strangers, then who knows, you actually might be hosting a literal angel. And then 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1, the, the Apostle Paul, he talks about the, the practice of hospitality. It's actually a job requirement or kind of this character quality list for all leaders within the church. In other words, you have to practice hospitality if you want to lead in any area of the church. Now, I've been around the church world for a long time, and I've seen leaders in the church be removed for heresy. I've seen leaders be removed for infidelity and financial mismanagement, but I have yet to see a leader in a church removed because they're not practicing hospitality. But yet, it's on the exact same list. Listen, everybody. As followers of Jesus, we're commanded to practice hospitality. And one of the things I love about hospitality is it's just so ordinary. It's so ordinary, but yet it's full of potential. Was there at Butterfield? Really, is a case study of this. You've heard me share some quotes from her book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And her, her story is that she was a far-left, radical, lesbian feminist. She was also this brilliant, tenured professor at Syracuse University with a specialty in postmodern theory and literature. And so she's not, she wasn't really the ideal person who would be open to the Jesus story. But she's writing this book on how Bible-believing Christians are basically the worst, how we're a threat and we're a menace to society. And so in order to write this book, she has to do all this research. And so she actually had to meet a few Bible-believing Christians. And in this process, she went to this men's conference. And that men's conference represented everything that she was against. And so she wrote in the New York newspaper this scathing article about this conference. But a pastor wrote in response to her article, and it was gracious and it was thoughtful. And, and with that, that response was an invitation to dinner. And so she's thinking, well, I have to do some research anyway on these Bible-believing Christians, and so I might as well go. And so she, so she writes in her book how she gets, into the, she gets to the driveway of this pastor's house, and she's thinking, what in the world am I doing? Am I, am, I, am I crazy in doing this? I mean, he's everything that I'm against. He's the enemy. But yet she goes ahead and goes in, and she writes about walking into the front door and experiencing hospitality and experiencing love as expressed in the welcome as, as a meal and how it then changed her life. She ended up coming back for dinner later. And then she came back again and again and again. And then she came to a Bible study. And then she came to a, a small group. And she eventually came to church. Long story short, she's now married to a Reformed Presbyterian pastor outside of Duke University. She's a foster parent, and they run a Christian ministry out of their home. And now, as best as I can see, her kind of life message is that the LGBTQ community does a way better job at hospitality than the church does. And we, as the body of Christ, we got to get our act together. That's basically her message here. I just think it's so true. I think we've missed it, and we have to regain this practice and recapture this practice of hospitality. It's something that's part of our Christian heritage. For thousands and thousands of years, it was a tradition, this practice of hospitality. It's, just, it's part of the legacy and the heritage of, of the Christian life. And I really believe it's, hospitality is that ground zero for the Christian faith. Rosaria writes this. She says, radically ordinary hospitality 
Those who live it see strangers as neighbors and neighbors as family of God. They recoil at reducing a person to a category or a label. They see God's image reflected in the eyes of every human being on earth. Those who live out radically ordinary hospitality see their homes not as theirs at all, but as God's gift to use for the furtherance of the kingdom. They open doors. They seek out the underprivileged. They know that the gospel comes with a house key. I love that last phrase. The gospel comes with a house key. Simon Carey Holtz, who is an Australian chef turned theologian, he says it this way. He says, it's good to be reminded that the table is a very ordinary place, a place so routine and everyday that it's easily overlooked as a place of ministry. At its base, hospitality is about providing a space for God's spirit to move. Setting a table, cooking a meal, washing the dishes is ministry of facilitation, providing a context in which people feel loved and welcomed and where God's spirit can be at work in their lives. Hospitality is very ordinary business, but in its ordinariness it's, is its real worth. Whatever it looks like, your own table is a sacred place. Listen, everybody, I just think this is so interesting. That the gospel pairs really well with a Chardonnay and with a warm, just a warm, out-of-the-oven sourdough bread and a hot bowl of Zuppa Toscana soup. The gospel pairs so well with your, our meals. Now, just to make sure we're kind of all on the same page, because probably some of you are already tuning me out here just a little bit, it's really important to understand there's a difference between hospitality and entertainment. Because for some of you, when I say hospitality, or when you read about hospitality in the Bible, your mind immediately goes to Martha Stewart or Joanna Gaines or anything on HGTV or the Food Network and the way your house ha has to look a certain way and has to have enough square footage to be able to do all this stuff. And you have to have the right dishes and the right um, serving platters. And you, you have to have some serious culinary skills to be able to do that. I think that's where a lot of our heads kind of go to when we talk about hospitality. But listen, everybody, that's not hospitality. And if that's what hospitality actually is, then that's going to write up the vast majority of us. Because that means that if you're in a room at UT, then you can't do this. You know, if, you, you still, if you're in an apartment with three other guys who haven't learned, yet learned the miracle of making their bed in the morning, you can't do this. Yeah, if you don't know how to cook, you can't do this. If you have kids running around your house half naked, quiet, quiet, uh, just crazy little munchkins, that run, you, you, you feel like you can't do this. Or if you don't have matching um, you know, Tupperware or, or serving platters or whatever, you, you feel like you can't do this thing. But listen, that's not what the New Testament writers are talking about when, with hospitality. That's entertainment. And so to compare and contrast this just a little bit, entertainment is about exclusion, Exclusion, in other words, you invite the in crowd, where hospitality is about inclusion. It's an open table where everyone is welcome. Entertainment is about performance. In other words, it's a time for, for you to show off your home and your, your culinary skills. But hospitality is about service, just tangible acts of love. Entertainment, there's this clear line between host and guest. But with hospitality, hospitality blurs those lines. This is one of the things I love about Jesus, because wherever he went, he was both host and guest. Think about it. He did them both at the same time. Entertainment is sporadic. In other words, you've got to get on the calendar. We put it out there. there. We've got to make sure we write it down and get a date for this in advance. Hospitality, on the other hand, is a way of life. In other words, it's rhythmic. It's regular. 
Entertainment is an act of reciprocity. So in other words, I have you over to my house. Now you're required to have me over to your house. But hospitality is an act of generosity. You give and you expect nothing in return. Entertainment is a marker of stratification of our society. In other words, you move up and down the social ladder one party at a time, where hospitality is about justice for the poor. Jesus said this in Luke chapter 14, starting verse 12. Then Jesus said to this host, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Listen, I think it's hard for us to understand how radical this shift that was happening that Jesus was putting into the society of the day. Because what Jesus was doing, instead of aiming hospitality upward in order to incur favor with those who are ahead of you in your kind of level of life, what Jesus was doing, that he was aiming hospitality downward as a way to serve and to do justice to the poor. And listen, everybody, that's what changed the world. In fact, historians say that it was through the practice of hospitality that the gospel actually rapidly increased around the world. At the time of Jesus' resurrection, there were only 120 people who were followers of Jesus. Three centuries later, Christianity was the dominant new normal. Over half of the population of the Roman Empire were in some way, somehow, followers of Jesus. And it toppled paganism. I mean, how many know anybody who still worships Zeus or Apollo or Aphrodite? And it toppled Caesar. As a matter of fact, some people believe that it actually toppled the Roman Empire. And so how did, how did that happen? How did that happen? With no internet, no sound system, no church buildings, no religious freedom, no celebrity pastors, no social media. How did this happen? Well, the gospel spread from one home to the next, from one table to the next. And as we just saw with this woman at the well, from one drink to the next. John 4, verse 39 says, So there are... There were many from the Samaritan village who became believers in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. Is this coming into focus for you just a little bit? We're going to just keep repeating a lot of these types of things. It gets in this because it's become now, I think, counter to our way of doing it, counter to our culture here. But radically ordinary hospitality with a dash of Holy Spirit power and revelation working through your life. And it changes everything. If you would, I want you to close your eyes here. Because today, maybe in everything we just talked about, maybe you can relate to this woman at the well. I mean, you're, you're feeling dried up. You've been running from one thing to another, looking for those things that might somehow, some way, fill you up and satisfy you. Maybe it's, it's been intentional that you're doing this, but maybe you've just kind of fallen into the trap of busyness, and boy, you, just, you feel empty. Life has just been draining you. You may not even know how you've gotten here, but you just feel drived up. Maybe you're, you're feeling insignificant. Maybe you're feeling like nobody really sees you, that nobody really understands you. Well, listen, I believe... 
that the Holy Spirit is already speaking to you, just like he did with that woman at the well. And he's letting you know that he sees you. And he's letting you know that he has a plan and a purpose for your life. And he's letting you know that your life does matter. He's letting you know that he wants to fill you up. He's letting you know that he wants to fill you with his living water today. And so, Father, I pray for every single one of us here this morning. Father, as whatever is consuming us here today, whatever it is that is just heavy in our hearts or whatever is just kind of filling our tanks, and, and if, if, we're feeling, if we're feeling dried up, Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you just fill us? Just afresh and anew with your spirit. Would you fill us with the essence of who God is? Love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Holy Spirit, we need more of you. We need you to fill us with your living water today. If you'd look up here real quick, because as I was preparing for the Sunday, you know, I was, I was thinking that, this little vessel may represent what's going on in your life. And what is obvious for you is, is, is really the junk that's in your life. And maybe even this week, it's been something that's been overwhelming for you. Whether it's something you've been tempted with, whether it's an addiction, whether it's anger, worry, fear, this could be so many different things, struggles in your relationships, struggles with your job and your finances, and it's just consuming. It just, it just feels, I, try to get, I, I, I need this out of me. I, I, I need you to do something here. I, I think a lot of us, our reaction to this is, God, help me. God, God, help me, right? And boy, it's wonderful when he does that. It's, 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 if you don't know anything else to do, yeah. Ask God to come alongside. He's your refuge. He's your strength. He's that very present help in trouble. But I want to tell you something. Jesus did something different at the well. He showed us something that was going to be released in us that actually changes everything. And it's the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit coming into our life. And so instead of, God, take this out. God, do this. God, change this. God, change this. What Jesus was talking about was letting the Holy Spirit come and fill you. And the more he fills you, look what happens. Your vessel changes, doesn't it? And the junk, the worry, the fear, the temptation, the loss, the rejection, all of a sudden, it's gone, isn't it? Because the Holy Spirit fills you. More of the Holy Spirit in you changes you. We're going to do things a little bit differently as we end. If you were here last Sunday, we did it too a little bit differently. I just think there's something about each of these tables that Jesus sets that we can enter into. And so we're going to have communion here today. And we do this at the end of every, every service. And I want to welcome you here. If you're new here, you don't have to be a member of this church to take communion. This is something that Jesus 
sets for us. And how we do it is that you simply come into the middle, starting with the front aisle, and you'll come this direction, and you'll come and you'll take a piece of bread, and you'll dip it in the juice. Jesus said that often, as often as we do this, this is a meal that we're supposed to celebrate. I took away your meal table from last Sunday. We had a huge meal last, last Sunday doing this. But I want you to go from that, which is really inviting Jesus, saying yes to Jesus, I want you to go another step and invite the Holy Spirit. Ask the Holy Spirit to come and fill you. We have <laughs> a river of water here for you. Just symbolically, the well, the stream of the Holy Spirit for you. And so, as you come here, I don't invite you to take communion, but I invite you to take a glass of water and then drink just a glass of water. And as you're doing that, just invite the Holy Spirit to come to fill you, to fill you. Whatever has been in your vessel, just to fill you, let them wash over you. Our ministry teams are going to be here at the side, and they're going to be praying over you as you walk by. They're going to ask us that God would fill you, the Holy Spirit would fill you as, as you walk by in this. So if you would stand to your feet, and let's do this here together. Father, I thank you for what you have stirred, what you have begun, even in this moment. And Lord, I pray that, Lord, we would be carriers of that as we leave here this morning, that we would carry your aroma into our workplaces, into our homes, into our neighborhoods, in our community, down Highway 71, wherever we go this week, Lord, we would be carriers of your presence. And Lord, that you would work just this practice of hospitality back into us. Whether it's something that we used to do, would you work it back in just? Whether it's something we've never done before, God, would you just start that in us? Lord, that we'd live our lives, not just for ourselves, but for others. Lord, that you would give us eyes to see our own lives and others even differently. And Lord, that we would go after those who are discarded, those who are marginalized, those who are outside. And, and Lord, that we would bring them in, neighbors as family, family into the family of God. God, would you just stir that in us? God, do a revolution inside of us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us today. If God is doing something in your life or you're looking for ways to get connected, you can learn about groups, teams, and more at onechapel.com slash welcome. You can subscribe to future messages from One Chapel on your favorite podcast player. And of course, you're always invited to services every Sunday morning at 9.30 and 11.30. See you next time.